Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. And as we're walking by faith and not by sight, we recognize that this is the very Word of God. Though God is unseen and we walk by faith, this is His Word revealed to us. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. This is the very Word of God. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you even that in your economy that you have provided then so great a salvation in Jesus Christ, your Son, even Jesus Christ, the Incarnate One, the One who is our High Priest. And we thank you then for the privilege of access into your presence through Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit, and so we can come to you in prayer this morning. Lord, we do praise you and thank you for the conference that we've had as we have been able to meditate upon the means of grace that you have provided so that we may know you more, and as we learned, that we may have our souls conditioned to love you more. So, Lord, we pray that there would be ongoing fruit even from the teaching of the last couple of days. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to make this church a church that is oriented toward your glory, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would love one another, that we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, that you would help us even to care for those amongst us who are hurting those who are sick, those who are struggling, those who are doubting. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people, a holy people, who point others to Jesus Christ 
and finding solace in Him. We do recognize that our church is here in this city, in this province, and in this country. We continue to pray for our leaders. We pray for Justin Trudeau. We pray that you would cause him to govern in a wise and righteous way. We do pray that he would repent of his sins and flee from the wrath to come. We pray as well for Daniel Smith, our premier. We thank you for different ways that she is seeking to do things that are more in accordance with your law. But we do pray, Lord, that she would not stop there. We pray that she would know Jesus Christ as her Savior. We don't want her to go to hell. We would like her to be with us in heaven. Lord, as well for our own Mayor Jody Gondek, we ask, Lord, that she would then see the sovereignty of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that she would humble herself and that she would submit herself even to Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior while she can. So, Lord, we pray for these leaders and for many in government. And we also pray for our witness as a church in this land. We pray that you would use the testimony of Calvary Grace along with the many other churches that are having your gospel preached this morning like Fairview Baptist and First Baptist and Redemption North and Redemption South and the many churches in Calgary that are seeking to herald your word this morning. We pray that you would bless and prosper those churches. But above all, we pray that Jesus Christ would be known and worshipped and honored and glorified in this city and beyond, even to the ends of the earth. And Lord, as now as we prepare our hearts to receive your word from your servant David, we pray that you would empower him with that special filling of your spirit, that special unction, and that you would cause us as hearers to be those with ears to hear, that we would actually hear in such a way that we would be believing, and from our believing, that we would be doing. So Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully in this moment through the event of your preached word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's my distinct privilege to introduce again David Mathis, who was with us at the conference. David is uh, the senior teacher for and editor for Desiring God Ministries. He's also a pastor at Cities Church in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And it's a great delight, David, to come to have you come and minister to us. We look forward to hearing from the wor- hearing the word from you. So come and share with us, brother. Thank you, Clint. You've been so gracious to me this weekend. The fellowship's been rich. Great to meet Gavin as well. And to sit with the elders last night at dinner and pray here this morning. Uh, You have a good team of elders. You're blessed people. I bring you greetings from Cities Church in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Turns out that uh, Twin Cities... Or that City's Church was turned out to be kind of prophecy for us. We were planted by Bethlehem Baptist nine years ago. We share the same teaching affirmation of faith as you guys do. And we started in Minneapolis in a high school 
and they had, a, they had a gas explosion in the high school. It was during the middle of the week. A number of people were there. It was during the summer, fortunately. Not many people were around. So we kind of tabernacled around looking for a spot. Eventually ended up in St. Paul, just on the other side of this distinctive boundary called the Mississippi River. And so now we kind of find ourselves right in the middle of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And Minneapolis is one, one way about three miles. St. Paul's the other way three miles. So we're uh, cities church. Turned out to work. I'm glad we didn't call it Minneapolis Church. You know, we didn't have to change the name to St. Paul Church. But Cities Church, I, I mentioned our location. You may say, what is that? Midway, our location midway between Minneapolis and St. Paul, because we're going to jump into Hebrews this morning at the midway point. All right? Chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, is the, is the seam that runs right down the middle of the book of Hebrews. It's the halfway point. So it's kind of like chapter, chapter 1 is three miles behind us, and chapter 13 is three miles ahead of us, and we're at this, this midway point. Now, I'd like to start with something really strange for a guest preacher. I want to kind of give you a little overview of the book of Hebrews. I know this is strange. We're not in a Hebrews series here, but we're at this midway point. The midway point for Hebrews, unlike other letters... Hebrews midway point is especially strategic spot to see the structure because this is right at the middle and Hebrews kind of moves out in these concentric circles from the middle so if you give me just a minute I'd like to give you a little overview on the book of Hebrews I love Hebrews so much I can't resist the heart of Hebrews is chapters 5 to 10 I mean that's the very middle and these chapters focus on the person and work of Christ, who he is as our great high priest and what he does as the once-for-all sacrifice. Chapters 5 to 7 makes the case that Jesus is the great high priest and that God, through the Hebrew Scriptures, has planned and anticipated this all along. It's not a change of plans. He is not a priest in the line of the Levitical line, the line of Levi, like the Old Testament priests, under the terms of the first covenant, but rather he is a priest of a different order. He's a king priest. And under the terms of the Old Testament, king priest is not allowed. There was a king called Uzziah who tried to play priest. He got leprosy from it. And the first king, Saul, tried to play priest. It didn't go well. In the Old Testament, no king priests allowed. But there's this strange, enigmatic figure in Genesis 14 who blesses Abraham when he comes back from the conquest of the five kings, and he's a king priest. He's not part of the Old Covenant. He's outside the covenant. He's before the covenant, and his name's Melchizedek. And that's what chapter 7 is about. So we got, as we look at chapter 8, we got Melchizedek behind us. But the summary is, is he's a different kind of priest. He's not an Old Testament priest. He's a king priest. And now in Jesus, chapters 5 to 7 are arguing, a king priest has come. Jesus is the climactic, final, great high priest to which the whole Old Covenant system pointed and awaited. Then before moving on after chapter 7, Hebrews wants to make sure that we got this clear. Right? I really like this, verses 1 to 2, when Teachers have been going on for a while, and they kind of pause for a minute and go, let me just make sure you got the main point. I'll make sure you got the main point. Hebrews does that. He's halfway through chapter 8. He says, now, the point in what we're saying 
is this. Okay, thank you, Hebrews. Like, if you have missed it up till now, here's the point. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. We have him right now. So this is not theory. This is not a hypothesis. It's not fantasy. This is reality. Chapters 5 to 7. Jesus is the great high priest, and we have him right now through faith. Already, no more waiting. We have him right now. The one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister for us in the holy places. So, not only is Jesus a new kind of priest compared to the Old Testament, but as a priest, he's got some work to do. Got some ministry to do. Priests have something to do. So that's what chapters 8 to 10 are about. Jesus' work as the priest. So he is a priest, 5 to 7, and he has work to do. What is that work? Chapters 8 to 10. That's the heart of Hebrews, chapters 5 to 10, with 8, 1 to 2 in the middle. Now, standing guard on the heart of the letter are these two parallel passages at the end of chapter 4 and toward the end of chapter 10. This is chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. If you want to, I, I won't do this for you. If you want a good Bible study this week, set aside some time, get Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and set it right next to Hebrews 10, 19 to 23, and see the parallel. See how they mirror each other. Here's some highlights. Both passages say, like chapter 8, 1 does, both passages say we have a great high priest. There's emphasis on having him right now. No longer waiting for him. Having him right now. And then both of these texts name him. Don't just call him great high priest. They name him as Jesus. And then they say that he's passed through the heavens or through the curtain. So God became man, accomplished our salvation, and then Jesus in the ascension passes through the heavens, still fully God and fully man, into the very presence of God, carrying our humanity with him into the very presence of God in heaven. And then both of these texts give this double exhortation. Let us hold fast our confession. Right? Don't, don't, don't slip. Don't go backwards. Hold fast. What you have heard and believed about Jesus is true. Hold it fast. It doesn't automatically stay fresh. You hold it. There's some holding to do. And the other exhortation is, let us draw near with confidence. Move forward. Close with Christ. Draw near in His Word. Draw near in prayer. Draw near as we gather together to worship as a body on Sunday mornings. So the exhortations mirror each other, and they're like two sentinels on guard at the heart of the letter. 4, 14 to 16, 10, 19 to 23, and in the middle, there's the heart, his person and work. Now, we're, st we're still working out here from the, the middle point of 8, 1 to 2, these concentric circles. Work out again another layer. Chapter 3, verse 1, parallels chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the specific exhortation there is, consider Jesus. That is, look to him. Attend to him. Meditate on him. Don't ignore him. 
Don't forget him as, as life happens, as life gets complicated, as you go through different seasons of life and you move on and there's different things that distract your attention. Don't forget him. Don't drift from him, but remember him. Ponder him. Contemplate him. That's probably the best English translation of this consider him in 3.1 and 12.1-3. Contemplate him. Set and reset your soul on him. And in doing so, you will hold fast to your confession of faith in him and draw near to him. But between those exhortations then to consider Jesus in chapter 3 and chapter 12, in those pillar exhortations, chapter 4 and 10, there's a negative example of what not to be like, chapters 3 and 4, and, a po- and then a bunch of positive examples of what to be like in chapter 11. Chapter 3 and 4 is about the wilderness generation. They came out of slavery in Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, and they, their faith failed in the wilderness. They did not go into the promised land because they didn't believe God's promises. So learn from them. Don't start in faith and lose the faith. Hold fast. And then all the positive examples of chapter 11 that we know and love in this faith hall of fame, as we call it sometime. Last thing then, working out to the very last layer, chapters 1 and 2 are kind of an extended introduction to the book about the exaltation of Christ and the incarnation and leading up to that first charge to consider him. And then the last two chapters, 12 and 13, are in many ways a kind of extended conclusion. There's following the high point of Jesus as the grand finale of all those parade of the faithful in chapter 11. He's the grand finale at the beginning of chapter 12. So let me give you my little summary here for the book. And we'll move on from the overview. I know, a very strange way to start. Get right to the text. Here's the overview. Chapters 1 and 2, we'll go backwards here for you. Chapters 1 and 2, introduction, Jesus exalted, incarnate, reigning. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider him, contemplate him, look to him. Don't forget that part of Christianity. This is, this is what it means to have faith, Christian faith. It's faith in him. Then chapters 3 and 4, the negative example of unbelief as Israel wandered in the wilderness and didn't trust his promises. Then chapter 4, 14 to 16, we have a great high priest. We have him. Hold fast to him. Draw near to him. Chapters 5 to 7, this is who Jesus is. He's the true priest. Then ours midway, midway point, chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have him. Chapters 9 to 10, this is what Jesus does as the true sacrifice. Chapter 10, 19 to 23, we have a great high priest. Hold fast to him. Draw near to him. Chapter 11, positive examples of faith from Abel to Jesus. And then chapter, th- chapter 12, 1 to 3, again, consider him. Look to him. Contemplate him. And then finally, extended conclusion in 12 to 13. So now we're situated here. Chapter 8, amazing thing here in looking at the outline, one reason to put the outline together for you like that is this refrain of look to him, consider him. Christian faith that perseveres continues to look to him. We persevere as we look to him. He's the object of our faith. We don't start by looking at him, believing in him, and then carrying on in the faith 
by looking at various other things and forgetting Him. If you feel like, my faith is, is dull. My tank, spiritual tank, is low. I feel sluggish spiritually. I wouldn't point you anywhere else than to Jesus. He's the object of Christian faith. If your faith feels weak, look to Him. Have you forgotten Him? Have you contemplated Him? Hebrews writes this letter to those who are, they're sluggish, that's what he calls it. They're dull in their faith. And he gives this message to them again and again. Look to Him, look to Him. You know what? I'm going to show you Him, chapters 5 to 7. Look to Him, and I'm going to show you Him, chapters 8 to 10. That's what Hebrews is doing. So, having established Jesus as the superior priest in chapter 7, and now he's making this transition in chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, to talk about his work as high priest, let's now look in verses 3 to 6 of chapter 8 at three more superiorities of Jesus as the superior priest. So, number the first one is, he's a superior priest. Now, let's look at three more superiorities. Number one, Jesus serves in a superior place. This is verses four and five. Jesus serves in a superior place. Verse two introduced that idea of a place. Jesus is now in heaven and a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Verses 4 and 5 then expands on this location, where he is right now, and that it's a better location. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And when Hebrews is saying this, this is before the temple's destroyed in AD 70. So, I mean, the temple's up and running in Jerusalem. There's priests there going about their duties according to the Old Covenant. And the priests are offering their gifts. And he says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So what's that quote there about do everything according to the pattern? This is from Exodus 25, verse 40. Moses and the people of Israel are about to construct the tabernacle. And as they do so, they're not just to make it up as they go. They don't sit down and have a, a plan drawing up design party. Nor, this, this is amazing, nor does God just make it up on the spot. Rather, God shows Moses a pattern. What's the significance of this pattern? What it means is that the tabernacle that Moses built, the tabernacle the people of Israel had in the Old Covenant and stabilized in the temple, wasn't the original. It was based on something else. The earthly tabernacle was patterned after the original place of God's presence, namely heaven itself. That's the true tabernacle where God dwells, in heaven 
And so according to Exodus 25, the holy place of the Old Covenant was not the original and not the final holy place. The tabernacle was a copy of the original. It was a shadow of some coming substance. And now the risen Christ has ascended to heaven itself to the superior place and sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Now, this is very relevant to us in the modern world where we are so conditioned to think of the superior place as down here. This world with all its sights and its sounds, its taste, its smells, its tangible pleasures. Heaven, that's the shadowy, ethereal place. That's the bland place. Hebrews confronts us here with another way of thinking. Jesus is not less effective because he ascended to heaven. He is more effective because he's in the superior place. It's like he says in John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. I'm going to the better place from where I can pour out my spirit. The upshot is that we would not think any less of the realness of our world. Our world is real. God made it. It's concrete. It's real. But we should reckon with heaven as all the more real. This world's derivative. It's secondary. Down here is copies and shadows, real as they are. And heaven is the more real place in the immediate presence of God than all the glories of this world and its sorrows. In an increasingly secular society, culture, we are being influenced by the kind of thinking all the time in subtle and overt ways that what you can see, the immediate world, the phenomenological world, is the only thing that's real and matters. And that is the opposite of the biblical vision. Heaven is the superior place where our superior high priest ministers for us right now. And a day is coming when he will return and bring his superior place with him and remake this world into the new heavens and new earth. So, the place is superior. Number two, Jesus makes a superior offering. This is in verse three. He makes a superior offering. At the, end of verse, at the end of chapter 7, verse 27, there's a hint about this superior offering. Like Hebrews can't resist. Even though he's, he's talking about the priest in chapters 5 to 7, he can't help but talk about the offering a little bit there before I make the, the turn at the midway point. He says in verse 27, once for all he offered up himself. So we know where this is going. This is where the offering is. Jesus isn't cutting the throat of lambs. He's giving himself to the slaughter. And now look at verse 3 of chapter 8. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. So, remember, 5 to 7, his priesthood, 8 to 10, 
his offering, his sacrifice. So verse 3 now begins the focus on his offering. What do priests do? Well, they make offerings. They do sacrifices. Question for the kids here. We got any kids remaining? Oh, some went out. Question for the kids. If someone is appointed a fireman, what do you expect them to do? What's that? Put out the fires. If you got a fire, put it out. If someone is a postman, what should they do? Deliver the mail. That's right. Deliver the mail. So when Jesus is exalted to the position of priest, what do we expect him to do? Have something to offer. Make an offering. Make a sacrifice. Do the work of a priest. Now, in the Old Covenant, before Jesus came, the work of the priests was endless. They had to offer sacrifices daily. First for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And with each new dawn, more sacrifices awaited. The work was never finished. And so throughout the day, the priests were on their feet. uh, There's instructions in Exodus for all of this furniture for the tabernacle. All all kinds of furniture. You You know what piece of furniture there's not in the tabernacle? Chairs. No chairs. Because the priests got work to do on their feet endlessly. They got to make offerings according to the law. But now Christ has come as the true priest, as a priest of a different order. And since he's a priest, we ask, what does he have to do? What, what, what offering does Jesus make? Now, chapters 8 to 10 have much to say about the offering, and they expand on Christ as the superior and final sacrifice. There, Hebrews is going to say that the Old Covenant place and offerings, so plural offerings in the Old Covenant, he's going to contrast those with the New Covenant place, like we have, and the singular offering. He's also going to compare The blood, and say that Jesus' blood, the new covenant blood is superior. In the Old Testament, it's bulls and goats. In the New Testament, it's Jesus' own blood. In the Old Testament, there's a different willingness. The lambs didn't volunteer themselves. Somebody just grabbed them by the scruff of the neck or the goat. The new covenant has a superior willingness. Jesus gives himself to the cross. There's a superior frequency in the new covenant. Not repeated, not over and over, but once for all at the cross. And there's superior effect in the new covenant. It's not temporary. It's not for now. It's not for today. It's not for this year. Then you have to have another sacrifice. It's eternal. And it's not just an external cleansing. It's now internal, a cleansing of the heart and of the conscience, the once-for-all self-sacrifice of Christ now takes away sins in a way the Old Covenant could not. And all that comes together then in one last superiority of Christ over what came before. This is number three. Jesus mediates 
a superior covenant. Verse 6. He mediates a superior covenant. Look at verse 6. But now, this is in contrast to the past. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. If we want to know how much better the new covenant is, Jesus' covenant, than the old covenant that came before, it might help us to put them side by side. Okay? Hebrews is kind of doing that throughout. Chapter 8 does that in particular. Some more aspects of it that are added in chapter 9. But Hebrews turns on this comparison of old and new and calling the new better. Let me just give you a little chart. i got a chart in my notes. You can just see it in your mind. I'll go back and forth between the things that are contrasted by Hebrews. All right, the first covenant is earlier. The new covenant is later. Kind of like the first covenant is a starter house. All right, get you going. It was good. Had somewhere to live for a while. And now there's an upgrade. It's a different house. Like, they didn't just add on a room to the starter house. It's a big upgrade. So earlier, later. The first covenant's on earth. The new is rooted in heaven. First covenant, copy and shadow. New covenant, original and actual. First covenant, an earthly tent. New covenant, the true tent. First covenant, set up by man. Men build it, set it up. New covenant, God set it up. First covenant is directed through Moses. New covenant is prophesied through David and Jeremiah in the Old Testament, telling that it's coming. The first covenant is enacted by sinful priests. They've got to make sacrifices for themselves. The new covenant is enacted by a sinless high priest. Singular. The first covenant is imperfect. It's incomplete. The new covenant is perfect, complete, final. The first covenant, Hebrews says, is ready to vanish away. The new covenant will not end. The first covenant, this last one here, the first covenant was good. It was good. New covenant, far better. Much more excellent, he says. The end of verse 6 says that the reason Christ's new covenant is much more excellent than the old is that it is enacted on better promises. So, what might those be? What what are the better promises? You want to know what the better promises are? I want to know what the better promises are. In chapter 7... Hebrews talks about there being a better hope. He first introduces that language in chapter 7, a better hope, a better covenant. And it's related to a particular Old Testament text. It's Psalm 110, verse 4. Let me read you Psalm 110, verse 4, and I want you to listen for what's better. Psalm 110, verse 4 is prophesying this better covenant to come. So listen what's better. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You 
are a priest forever. All right? I hear two better promises in Psalm 110, verse 4. The promises are final and they're forever. There's a small distinction there, but let me, let me tease it out here. It's final in that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is not the starter house. I have sworn and will not change my mind. And there's forever. Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again with indestructible life. And he will continue forever as the permanent high priest. Which means... Now here come some more promises, more promises for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. And he's able to save to the uttermost, all the way to the end. Not just get you started, not just help you a few times along the way, save you to the uttermost. And as we've seen in Hebrews 8, the place of the priesthood is better, and his offering of himself, once for all, is better And the rest of chapter 8 shows more of these better promises from Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me just summarize them for you briefly. God will put His law in our hearts by His Spirit. Verse 10. Each of us will know Him. Each of us in the covenant. Verse 11. And He will deal decisively with our sin and guilt and remember our sins no more. Verse 12. But I want to end with a question this morning, with some applications. But, but first, a question that would lead us into those applications. Here's, here's the question. How new is this new covenant? How new is it? Look at verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see that word, second? You got it? You can put your finger right on it. If you're a pencil guy, you can use pencil. Second. A second covenant. You see that word, first? Hebrews, here and throughout, this is the same thing Jesus does. Talks about old and new. Paul talks about old and new. The Apostle John talks about old and new. Hebrews speaks of two covenants, a first and a second, an old and a new. And when he says new, you know what I think he means? I think he means new. Actually new. Not an update. Not an expansion. Not a renovation on the starter house. Not an appendix. New. A second covenant. There was an old, and now there's new. There was a first, now there's second. And in enacting a new covenant through his death on the cross, the old is being brought to a glorious end. It's God-appointed consummation. This contrast between Old Covenant and New Covenant Hebrews chapters Hebrews chapter 8 is an outworking of something Hebrews already said in chapter 7. 
Let me just give you one more text from chapter 7 before we look at some, a few points of application to finish. This is chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Very important. What Hebrews says in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, is that if you change the priestly order, you change the whole covenant. All right, look at verse 11, chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. Verse 12, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I emphasize it because many Christians don't think this way. And that is, this is not the way I've always thought. It wasn't my first instinct. I had to be corrected by Hebrews 7, 11 to 12, and Hebrews 8, and Paul's talk of old and new, and Jesus' talk of old and new, and John's talk of old and new. But this text is really helpful because many of us naturally think that under the, under the law, under the Old Covenant, the people receive the priesthood. God establishes the Old Covenant. Priesthood's one of the things. And the priesthood can come and go, Certain civic and ceremonial, other aspects of the law could come and go. We got a foundation there. But verse 11 says the opposite. Under the priesthood, the people received the law covenant from Moses. In other words, the priesthood is not founded on the law. The law is founded on the priesthood. You got to have mediation to have a covenant. And now... Here's the payoff. And now in Christ, there has been a change in the priesthood. A priest of a new order has arisen. And verse 12 says, when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So, brothers and sisters, the point of it is, is know your covenant cherish your new covenant. In Christ, we are under a new covenant, not renewed, not tweaked, not updated, not expanded. It's new. It is another covenant. Old has gone. New has come. Another priest has arisen, and with him has come a new covenant. There was a first. This is a second. There was old. This is new. And so chapter 7, verse 18 says, the old has been set aside. Chapter 10, verse 9 says that Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And later in chapter 8, verse 13 says, Jeremiah prophesying of the new covenant, that in doing so, he has made the old one obsolete. So, the new covenant is such a superior covenant. It's not the same old covenant, enhanced, edited, improved, expanded. It's new, and you cannot do justice to the argument of Hebrews without it being new. But probably you're saying, so what? All right, and 
maybe create some theological questions for me. Like, are we about to throw the Old Testament out? The answer is no. So let me end with three practical implications for us as those who live under the new covenant. All right, This is what we're doing. We're living under the old covenant. Number one, first, we read the Bible as new covenant Christians, which means that we distinguish between the old covenant as our scripture and as our covenant. All the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is our scripture. It is all Christian scripture written for the church. But the old covenant is not our covenant. It's our spiritual heritage for sure. It is our scripture. And to say more, the Old Testament is critical for understanding and appreciating our covenant. But the old covenant is not our covenant. Ours is the new covenant, enacted and mediated by Jesus Christ, our covenant head. And so, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he focuses his church on, he says, teaching the nations to observe all that I have commanded you. He doesn't say, teach him everything Moses taught. Get Moses out there. Just yesterday morning at the end of uh, Matthew 17, the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up. And Peter is all excited, like, well, let's build three tents. Like, Moses is here. Build a tent for Moses. A tabernacle for Moses. And Elijah well, these are, the, these are the two greats of the Old Testament. And a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved son. Hear him. One tent. One new covenant. Teach them to observe all that he's commanded. So as we read the Bible as new covenant Christians, we take the commands of Christ and his apostles as commands to us in our new covenant, in a way that we do not directly apply the commands of Moses like those under the old covenant. Second then, we pray as new covenant Christians. Those who are at the seminar this weekend may start to see a pattern here. We pray as new covenant Christians. We pray to a heavenly Father as Jesus taught us. You know, Jesus brought that. And we pray in Jesus' name. And we pray as those indwelt by the Spirit of Christ who helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8, 26. Brothers and sisters, it is a glory to pray as a new covenant Christian. Don't throw away Father at the beginning of your prayers. Don't throw away, as an old worn-out phrase, in Jesus' name, in your prayers. Don't miss the opportunity we have as New Covenant Christians to speak to the living God at any moment because our great high priest has gone through the curtain into his very presence. We don't only speak to him as his creatures, but as his children in Christ. It is unspeakably great to have a great high priest. Finally then, we belong to the body of Christ as New Covenant Christians. 
we're not in this new covenant alone. We have fellows in the covenant. And so, very practically, local church membership matters. We covenant with one another as an extension of our new covenant with Christ by faith so that we might be the church to each other in difficult times. Anybody can do covenant community when it's easy. Like you make covenants for hard times. And that means that we have to establish some terms of our covenant fellowship. We're going to make covenants with each other for church life. You've got to establish some terms. So at our church back in Minneapolis, and I think here as well, the language used for requiring in this fellowship is what we call a credible profession of faith. That's what we're looking for for baptism. Credible profession of faith. To baptize and to be a member of the local church. And we realize that terms like these, at least temporarily, are exclusionary. That excludes adults who don't have a credible profession of faith. It excludes children who don't yet have a credible profession of faith. And we have established these terms in part, among other reasons, because of our understanding of New Testament commands. Believe and be baptized. And because this best corresponds to the reality of the new covenant in contrast to the old, like we see in Hebrews 8. The old covenant at its core was ethnic and tribal. There were provisions for converts, proselytes, to come into the covenant. But by and large, the old covenant members were born into the covenant. The center was a particular ethnicity. So applying the rite of initiation, circumcision, at physical birth was fitting in the old covenant. But now... Christ has come. He has inaugurated a new covenant. He has brought the old to its appointed consummation with its ethnic and bodily focus. The new covenant is not tribal. It is not ethnically centered. Jew is an ethnicity. Christian is not. And we are Christians under the new covenant. So today... The center of the covenant, the heart, the locus of the covenant is those who have experienced new birth, not mere physical birth, new birth. And so, my local church back home, same as you here, I believe, we give effort to making our church membership, as best we can, be more proximate to God's new covenant people rather than less. We sure hope, in fact, we intend to make this sure, that being born into a Christian family is a priceless, inestimable grace. It is an amazing thing to be near the life-saving, life-giving Word, to be cared for by parents who have the Holy Spirit, to be part of a larger Christian community, and in accordance with the terms of the New Covenant, we do not presume that birth into a Christian family means new birth. And so, we do not believe that physical birth into a Christian family 
is the proper occasion for baptism or church membership, but rather new birth by the Spirit. And so we want our church's membership to be as similar to new covenant reality as we can reasonably discern, which means baptizing and receiving new members based on a credible profession of faith. And at the very heart of the new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, is personally knowing God. They will all know me, he says. And so, in light of Hebrews 8, to belong to the local church, we confirm the knowledge of God in Christ in view of a credible profession. Brothers and sisters, the glory of Hebrews 8 and the new covenant is that those who have been born again, who are in the covenant by faith, can say right now, we have Jesus. We have him as our great high priest. We have him as our once for all sacrifice. For those of us who believe this is not merely a hope, it's not a prayer, it's not a longing for reality that we hope will be true someday, it's true right now. We have such a high priest. God's people waited centuries for this, to have a king priest like this, and now we have him. He has come, he's lived without sin, he's died in our place, he rose in triumph, he ascended to heaven, he sat down, his work finished like the priest never finished, and he intercedes for us. So, know him, receive him, take him as your God and as your great high priest, trust him, draw near to him, delight in him. Have him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what and who we have in Jesus and in your poured out spirit that dwells in us and in the amazing gift of this new covenant reality of fellows in Christ, brothers and sisters, to walk the path of this life and be in covenant community as we seek to live out by your grace and, and uh, hold fast in our faith and draw near to you. So I pray for your great grace here on Calvary Grace. Would you draw near? Would you sustain faith? Reignite faith? Turn eyes to Jesus? Give health and perseverance and endurance against the conditioning of the world that would try to teach us that down here is all that matters and all there is? Help us to endure. Give us your grace in our great high priest, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.